good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll check in with WTTW host Jeffrey Baer to talk about his new special, The Most Beautiful Places in Chicago. Theater critic Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about a new production of the musical 1776 that has an interesting twist. And later we'll pay tribute to saxophonist Wayne Shorter, who passed away this past week. I'll revisit my 2016 interview with the jazz legend. All that's coming up, but first a quick reminder that we're in the middle of our spring pledge drive. We only call on you a couple times a year, and this is one of those times the arts section needs your support. Please make a contribution by calling 630-942-5299 or visit wdcb.org to make a pledge online. I know you hear this a lot, but it really, it's true. It's you, the listeners, who make this type of programming possible. Arts and culture doesn't get a lot of airtime anywhere these days. So if this is something you enjoy, show how much it means to you by calling 630-942-5299 or by going online to make a donation. Thank you. Now on with the show. I paint you a picture of Placid Night. Come back to Chicago, City of. WTTW's Jeffrey Bear has covered a lot of ground over his 25 plus years on air at Channel 11. The Emmy Award winning host and producer has explored Chicago and its surrounding suburbs extensively in a series of incredibly popular TV specials. Chicago by L, The Seven Wonders of Chicago, and Chicago on Vacation are just a handful of the programs he's presented over the years. His latest special is all about beauty, specifically beauty in the Chicago area. Every time I go out to do one of these shows, I come across some place that just makes my jaw drop. Often it's a place I, I didn't know about and, and I just think, oh my gosh, it, it, you know, this is, I can't believe this is in Chicago or the Chicago suburbs. Of course, we all know beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so the hour-long program is meant to be a discussion starter of sorts. The new special titled The Most Beautiful Places in Chicago will premiere on Tuesday, March 7th at 7 p.m. on Channel 11. I recently caught up with Bear at WTTW's studios on the north side of Chicago to talk about finding beauty. We'll get into the this new special in a minute. Uh, first, I'm just curious about how you come up with your ideas for these specials. Do you have a, a running list with potential subjects, or are you just constantly thinking of ideas for these specials? Always, yes. You know, it takes about eight months to make one of these shows, and we have a, a green light uh, process here at WTTW. So, in fact, I'm doing this now for whatever the next show will be after this one. You know, we, we've for years and years have talked about different ideas and put one on the back burner and another one moves to the front burner and that kind of thing. But uh, right now I am in the process of just brainstorming uh, maybe six or eight show ideas. We just do a little bit of brainstorming first to see which ones are going to be m- most interesting or whether it's the right time for that one or not. And the, 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 maybe we narrow that down to three or four ideas and then I really flesh those out. 
uh, to see which one will sort of make the final cut. And it has to go through some layers of approval sure. here at WTTW. I would imagine probably the pandemic was like this interruption. You might have had things already lined up. Yeah, well, during the pandemic, um, we you know, really thought about, well, what can we do to keep making shows? And so we actually did two shows during the pandemic shot entirely with a drone. Right. Uh, a, a beyond, a Chicago from the Air was the first one, and then Beyond Chicago from the Air, uh, where we went beyond our... our immediate geographic area out to like southern Illinois and uh, western Illinois and Wisconsin and so forth. Um, and it was sort of the ultimate in social distancing. You know, uh, I wasn't, you know, we just sent this drone crew out with a with a list of um, things we wanted to capture. I, I did a bunch of research and, and so I was very, very happy to be back doing a show where I'm actually interviewing live human beings. And uh, that's what this show, The Most Beautiful Places in Chicago, uh, really allowed me to do. I, I mean, the show is, there are just so many warm and wonderful people who I was able to meet and who who show me these places that they love. I think the human element in this show is, is as, as, as charming to me as the incredible visual beauty, which of course is, you know, central to a show called The Most Beautiful Places in Chicago. Once the idea for this special was uh, decided upon then was visual beauty the the starting point thinking of places in the Chicago area exactly I really thought this was going to be a show about visual beauty that's just where my 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 mind went as I was conceiving the show I, I thought about you know I've been doing these these shows on WTTW where I take people around like a tour guide and show them Chicago architecture and talk about Chicago history I've been doing this for like 25 years I've actually been a Chicago architecture center docent or tour guide longer than that I'm class of 87 oh, wow. and you know I'll take visitors to to Chicago on on a tour or even just you know, an informal tour and, you know, we'll walk into a place and I'll watch their face just light up with astonishment. I mean, a good example is, you know, you go to the cosmetics counters at Macy's State Street store, the old Marshall Fields <laughs> State Street store, and you go up to the cosmetics counters and then you say, look up. <laughs> and there's the world's largest Tiffany mosaic up there over your head. And people are just, they can't believe it. Or you go to the Elks Memorial in Lincoln Park, which is like the Pantheon in Rome. But then you walk into the adjoining room and it looks like you're in Louis XIV's Versailles. And people just can't believe these things are in Chicago, you know? Um, so that's kind of where I started with the show, was thinking about visual beauty. But we wanted we wanted more voices into the show. We wanted people to take me to places and show me places. And, and by the way, I also, these weren't all just places I knew about. I put the word out to a lot of my contacts and reached out to a lot of people. And some of those people are let me know about places that I'd never even heard of. And I would invite them on to take me there on camera and I would interview them there. And just getting the, the human, the voices of these people into the show um, really expanded my definition of beauty. So it's not just visual beauty, but it's what makes the place meaningful to these to these people. And they talk about them with such sort of love and pride and humor and amazement and uh, joy. And, and, and that really brings a whole other layer into the show. Since you mentioned Macy's, of course, formerly Marshall Fields on State Street, I think that location, and then you also go into Tribune Tower. Both those are these iconic structures, but I don't know that uh, sh 
you know, a lot of Chicagoans who have been here their whole life. Well, Macy's probably have been there, but maybe haven't looked up. But Tribune Tower, the majority of people have probably just walked by it every day. That's right. And that's kind of been a hallmark of my work forever on WTTW. People constantly come up to me if they recognize me on the street and just say, you know, I've lived here all my life and I never knew that. I, I, I think I... I like this sort of I never knew that phenomenon of uh, or, or element of my work. Um, this Tribune Tower lobby was a real favorite of mine because I um, Tribune Tower has become privatized. It's now a a, a residential mm-hmm. condo building, right? It's no longer an office building. And I was down on on uh, Michigan Avenue. And, you know, the scaffolding was down. They'd done the, the restoration of the building. And I was wondering if I, I knew about the lobby um, because I've been down there to be interviewed on one of your rival radio stations, uh, <laughs> which will remain nameless. But they used to be in the lobby uh, or access to the lobby. Anyway, I was down on, on Michigan Avenue and I, I thought, why? Well, I wonder if the lobby's even open to the public anymore, which I did, discovered it was. So I went went through the revolving doors. And here's this woman, Melissa, uh, who is is uh, the lobby greeter. They call her an ambassador. And she recognized me. And, and she was she was a, a little starstruck. <laughs> and uh, But she was wonderful. And she knew so much about Tribune Tower. And she talked with such pride about the lobby and, and the inscriptions. And the lobby looks like a looks a little bit like a, a Gothic cathedral with a, a wood beam ceiling and etched into the walls all around it. You know, it's like a monument to the publisher, Colonel McCormick's big ego. Uh, etched into the walls all around it are these 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 tributes to freedom of, of speech and freedom of the press. And she talked about that sort of almost reverently. And I thought, I have got to interview her. You know, she's got to be in the show. Um, this was before I was even conceiving of the show, you know, but I could, sort of kept her in my mind. It actually took us a while to find her again um, when we went. I said, we, I said, there's this one woman. She works in the lobby. We've got to find her. We've got to interview her because she was great. And if, if you watch the show, she, she really is. She's just terrific in the show. And she's, you know, speaks of it with so much, such pride. What she talks about is... You know, here's just a woman. She's grown up in Chicago all her life. I think she she thinks she said she's from the South Side. And what this has taught her, you know, people come into this lobby from all over the world, and they're surrounded by these messages about freedom of the press. And she thinks about the fact of freedom of speech, and she thinks about the fact that people in other countries, some of the other countries, don't have those freedoms. And, and it makes her feel very grateful, you know, for for the freedoms that we probably probably made her feel more patriotic, you know, to, to have the freedoms that we have in this country uh, all, with all its flaws. So that was kind of quite moving to hear her say that, and she, she does say that in the show, yeah. too. You said it's a, our rival station, but I, I interned at WGN. Ooh, so you said it. <laughs> I walked in my first day through that lobby, and, you know, it was like, whoa. But then every day after that, I came in a, a side door, and I probably didn't appreciate it as much as mm-hmm. as I should have. Can people off the street just walk in? Yeah, the lobby is still open to the public, thankfully. It's a landmarked building, and it might be that um, maybe that was part of the agreement when they made it into a private residential building that they would that the lobby would remain open. I'm not sure, but as of you know when we filmed the show, and as far as I know, it is still uh, open to the public. Yes. 
is uh, the woman who worked in the lobby of Tribune Tower, had a great amount of passion. Another person that you interviewed, I believe he was a park designer. He was responsible for two parks on the south side that you checked out, and the one in particular, the the one near Chinatown that had a really great story. Yeah, so this is Ernie Wong, and he actually is one of the partners in a wonderful landscape architecture firm called Site or Site Design, which has done work all over Chicago and all over the country. Um, and you're talking about Ping Tom Park, which is in Chinatown. So the the two parks that Ernie designed, and, and he's in the show, and he's this wonderful, warm, joyful sort of presence in the show. I just loved meeting him and, and, and spending time with him when we were filming. The, the reason these two parks are in the show is that they're both abandoned industrial sites. The one in Bridgeport is an abandoned quarry and later a landfill. And Ping Tom Park was a railroad yard, a Santa Fe railroad yard, right along the south branch of the Chicago River. I mean, like right on the edge of the river uh, in Chinatown. And, you know, Chinatown is a place that had no parks no open space yeah. for generations. There were generations of kids that grew up in Chinatown with no parks. Uh, it, it happened because if you think about where uh, the um, Dan Ryan connects to Lakeshore Drive, that sort of that sort of connector, uh, or, or it's if you kept going on I-55, if you were coming from the south. Um, you know, when you, you pass underneath the Rye and it takes you all the way over to Lakeshore Drive. When they built that, which I remember because my grandmother lived in, in uh, Hyde Park and we would go there from where we lived in Deerfield. Okay. I remember when they built that, so it would have been in the 1960s, they destroyed all the parks in Chinatown and they never built any more. So uh, the, the, a local uh, business leader, Ping Tom, uh, worked out a deal where this rail yard had become abandoned and they got access to it. Uh, a, a Feng Shui master came in and said it was the worst possible place you could ever build a park because it turned its back on the river. So Ernie really figured out a way to uh, open up this site. So obviously all the tracks are gone. You do have to cross active rail, an active railroad line, an active freight railroad crossing okay. just to get into the park. So if you're in the park, now you're up along the river and a freight train comes by, you have to wait for the freight train before you can get out of the park. Right. So if you're there with your little kids, they're gonna have to find, <laughs> find a place to do the diaper change or something. But it's, it's, uh, it's right along the river and Ernie did this beautiful job of sort of sculpting the landscape there with little hills and things and he, a, a, a Chinese pavilion, pagoda-like pavilion. And Ernie talks about how, you know, he got to explore his own roots. Ernie's Chinese-American, but he himself had never been to China until the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And when he went there for the first time, he saw a lot of this in, indigenous Chinese architecture, and it really kind of helped him connect with his own roots. Ironically, his father, who, who was a Chinese immigrant to this country, was a pretty famous modernist architect. He worked with the modernist architect Mies van der Rohe, you know, the glass box, mm-hmm. less is more. We have actually got a picture of his father, of Ernie's father with Mies at Farnsworth House when wow. Farnsworth House was under construction. Wow. Ernie's father was this really strict modernist architect. So he was very disapproving of Ping Tom Park, which was traditional. You know, but Ernie, you know, had to reconcile that. Uh, and, and, you know, that's what the, the, the community wanted. 
If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the WTTW host, Jeffrey Baer, about his new special, The Most Beautiful Places in Chicago. The second half, or maybe the, the final third of the special, focuses on places of worship, and I think these are examples of, of the types of places that a vast majority of viewers won't be as familiar with, at least uh, the interiors, regardless of your religion, most people aren't visiting places of worship other than their own. And there really is some beautiful architecture within these places you've highlighted in the show. Well, we certainly wanted to represent a, a broad range of faiths. I'm sure we didn't get every single one. So there was that. That was very important to us. And then obviously I wanted things that were spectacularly beautiful uh, or, or in just in some way like kind of take your breath away, whether they're incredibly ornate, uh, like the BAPS Hindu mm. temple, Hindu Mandir in Bartlett, or kind of minimalist but incredibly beautifully modern, like uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's Unity Temple in Oak Park, which we also feature. The BAPS is completely mind-blowing. I had been aware of it. Um, actually, we had it, we filmed it for Chicago from the air, so we'd filmed the outside of it with our drone. But you go inside this place and you just can't believe your eyes. I mean, if you can imagine like a um, intricately carved marble statue that you could fit like in the palm of your hand. Then imagine like Lego blocks all made of these statues covering every square inch of the wall, the ceilings. Uh, I mean, this entire thing was hand carved out of marble by thousands of artisans in India and then shipped piece by piece to the United States to be reassembled in Bartlett. There's no steel in the structure at all. If you look up at these these sort of, there's like little coves um, overhead uh, between each of the columns and these ornate columns and and giant stone, like single pieces of stone up there that have been you know, carved with all these intricate carvings, and they're like keystones holding the whole structure up from above. Uh, you just can't even believe this is all done by hand when you see it. I mean, at a certain point, you know, because Chicago is filled with, with beauty, uh, was it a challenge cutting it off, a few that didn't make the cut? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, the show is called The Most Beautiful Places in Chicago. I wanted to to have this, you know, consciously, intentionally provocative title. Like, did we really find the most beautiful places in Chicago? Are these really the most beautiful places in Chicago? You know, spoiler alert, of course not. I mean, there's so much more that we could have gotten into the show uh, that, w that, we, that you just don't have time for in a one-hour show. And so one of the things we want is to get a conversation going. Um, and actually, we're going to have um, a place on our website where people can um, contribute their own uh, suggestions for future programs about beautiful places in Chicago. And by the way, the website has a, a lot of, of um, cool sort of web-exclusive material as well. There's a, an audio tour that I narrate so people can kind of go out and explore on their own. And we really want people to, you know, go, get out there and, and explore these places, not just watch them on television. There's uh, a little web feature. There's an artist in the show named Roman Villarreal. Um, who made a, a sculpture down on the south side lakefront where there used to be a steel mill that he worked in. And the sculpture is a tribute to the workers of that steel mill and their families. But he also uh, carved, uh, he's, he considers himself a guerrilla artist. 
And he, without any permission, uh, went down to the lakefront years and years and years ago and carved a mermaid out of the stone, a, a big block of stone that is part of the you know lakefront uh, revetments, the, the the rubble that protects the lakefront. And it was just this beautiful mermaid that showed up on the lakefront. So we have a feature about that on the web uh, that uh, you don't see in the show. And there's like a you know photo gallery and things. So there's all you know because things go by really quickly in the show. And now you can go back and look at them on the website. So the website is an important part of this uh, project too. Right, a lot of supplemental things that go along with the special. This is just your opinion, but at the, like one of the first segments, you go to this new St. Regis Tower, beautiful building designed by acclaimed architect Jeannie Gang. Functionality is number one priority, but because Chicago has such a reputation for being uh, a center for architecture, do you get a sense that they're with new architecture? Do these architects face pressure to, to create something that is uh, aesthetically pleasing? I think that's absolutely the case. Every architect I know talks about feeling a sort of a special obligation when you work in Chicago, that we really care. We care about our our buildings. And, um, you know, when you're talking about St. Regis Tower, which is um, the th- just opened, uh, the third tallest building in Chicago. Um, this is that beautiful blue glass building that's um, not far from the lakefront, right along the Chicago River, so east of Michigan Avenue Bridge. And it's sort of angles in, out, in, out, in, out as it rises up to the top and it looks like three towers and then it's two and then it, the, the, there's the thinnest part that goes all the way up to the top. That building is is uh, built for the one one-hundredth of one percent. You know, you have, to, you have to be able to afford $19 million for a condominium, which actually we show in the, in the program, which is pretty fun. But the other six million people who live in this region have to look at the thing all the time, right, from the outside. So I think Jeannie, being the brilliant architect that she is, really understood that, you know, you're going to build something like that. It better be something that's not an eyesore. And in fact, that contributes to the to the built environment, contributes to the beauty of the, beauty of the city, because that's how the vast majority of people are going to experience it. I think about Trump Tower in Chicago which is a beautiful building by Adrian Smith, of Skid, formerly of Skidmore, Owings & Merrill. If you think about the Trump buildings in other cities, they're garish, they're gaudy, tacky, you know, gold and, you know, marquee lights. And, um, you know, and I've, I've said on my tours, you know, you can't do that in Chicago. And, you know, to his credit, I mean, Trump hired a great Chicago architect and, and, and gave us arguably the best looking Trump building anywhere, tasteful, a good neighbor with the way the, the different roof heights set back at different heights mm-hmm. to mimic the roof heights of neighboring buildings like the Wrigley Building or Mies van der Rohe's IBM building. So it's a very, very nice building. And, uh, you know, I think this is a statement about how much we care about what buildings look like in this town. I think you, you already kind of alluded to it, but you're hoping that the special sparks conversation among viewers about their favorite beautiful places. Absolutely. And and really inspires them to, to go out and, and explore uh, on their own and see, see beautiful places in Chicago. And, you know, to that end, we tried to, you know, go beyond downtown, you know, and really get out into some neighborhoods and into the suburbs and, and not just architecture, but um, parks and natural areas or, or, or designed natural areas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it'd be 
the best possible outcome if uh, I hear that, number one, that people are sending me ideas for, for their beautiful places and, uh, and also getting out there and, and exploring them on their own. So any, uh, any hints on what the next special will be on? Um, more beautiful places in Chicago. Uh, I, I will. Okay, so I will reveal. This was originally going to be about a, a, a much longer show, and we had already shot a whole lot more than uh, than is currently in the show. And then the interviews with these people, the people and, and how affecting they were, were so great that as we started putting the show together, we just felt like we have to give these people time and space to share who they are and why these places are so beautiful and special. And that meant cutting about half the show. So we've already got another one that we can uh, make, which will uh, will debut in uh, uh, November. This one, the current show, The Most Beautiful Places in Chicago, uh, debuts on March 7th. Uh, but this fall, there will be more. Jeffrey, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. That's Jeffrey Baer. He's the host of WTTW's upcoming special, The Most Beautiful Places in Chicago. It'll premiere on Tuesday, March 7th at 7 p.m. on Channel 11. The station has also created a companion website to further explore some of the destinations featured in the special. You can check that out at WTTW.com slash beautiful places. Thanks for tuning in this Sunday morning. Quick reminder that we're in the midst of our spring pledge drive. If you enjoy the programming Sunday mornings here at the station, please give us a call, 630-942-5299, or visit wdcb.org and make a pledge online. Thanks. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely is theater critic Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Hope that you are doing well. I'm doing well. We hope that uh, our colleague Carrie Reed will recover from her small illness quickly and be back with us next week. Right, right. You're flying solo this week. And we're going to be talking about a touring musical that's making its way around the country and is in Chicago right now. Based on the events leading up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the musical 1776 originally premiered on Broadway in 1969 with music and lyrics by Sherman Edwards and a book by Peter Stone. That production won three Tony Awards and three years later was adapted into a film. The successful musical has been revived over the years, but the latest version, which opened on Broadway last year and is now touring, is unlike any previous production. This new take on 1776 features an all-female, transgender, and non-binary cast. The production is currently in the midst of its Chicago stop through March 12th at the CIBC Theater. Jonathan, I know you'll get into some of the, the details of the musical, but I think the obvious question is... Does this new approach to casting add something to this traditional musical? We're getting something we don't usually see in Chicago in a touring show. We're getting many of the members of the Broadway cast from last year, and that's kind of rare. And another little touch that I like is that 
It features an acoustic orchestra, not an amplified rock band. And the orchestra is in an open orchestra pit, so you can actually see them. And the conductor in these days, you know, orchestras tend to be covered over there underneath the stage because everything is amplified. So these are nice little kind of old-fashioned touches. For what is, I mean, for all practical purposes, an old-fashioned show, this is a show that's 54 years old. Um, and what we have in, uh, in this version, it's smart, it's funny, it's intelligent, it's thoughtful, uh, and you know, that's just what you want a musical to be that is about the Declaration of Independence. It's what it should be. This show also has a wonderfully gifted cast, uh, it's not only a racially diverse cast, but as you said, Gary, uh, everyone in the cast is either a woman, a trans artist, or a non-binary artist performing all of the roles which are overwhelmingly roles for men, the founding fathers. So um, despite some of these pluses, uh, this 1776 really is relying on what I can only call a casting gimmick. Truthfully, the thoughtful and funny parts of the show are due to the music and lyrics, as you noted, by Sherman Edwards and Peter Stone. And they haven't changed since the show debuted in 1969, 54 years ago. What I think happened is that the producers and the director of this show, you know, they're obviously they're borrowing from the phenomenon of Hamilton, in which our founding fathers were played by multiracial actors. This production not only goes the multiracial route, which is fine, but takes the extra step of using only the non-male performers. The distinction, and it's an important one, is that Hamilton also had words and music and an attitude which were brand new, not 54 years old. It was created by an artist, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who was still in his 20s when he wrote Hamilton. So he completely reimagined our founding fathers, whereas this 1776 merely recasts them. The bountiful talent of the company notwithstanding, for me the gender switch simply does not illuminate the characters or events in any new ways. And in fact, the the original material by Peter Stone and Edward Sherman is a bit sexist in keeping with the attitudes of the 1960s and early 1970s. And the sexual innuendos which pop up in 1776, and are mostly intended uh, for comedy and humor, they also seem, seem oddly out of place when delivered by a cast that is, you know, uh, all female, you know, non-binary or, or trans artists. So not to oversimplify things, uh, it sounds like the, the cast is, is really talented, but really the... In your opinion, the the gendered casting doesn't really add anything. Yeah, you know, the cast is wonderfully talented, full of talent. But the whole concept, this idea, I'm referring to it as a gimmick. Uh, but the production concept is a bit. Uh, uh, it's what what used to be what some people call applique. It's applied. It's embroidered over the original material without really expanding it. A difference without a distinction might be a way to to put it. Sure. So what you're really looking at, what you really have to consider is you know, what are they what are the bones that are there? What is it in the original show uh, from nineteen sixty nine that still works or perhaps it doesn't work. First of all, this is a show that is it's not a big dance show. 
like a typical Broadway musical. And it also does not have really very many songs. There are about a dozen songs altogether, and a musical typically will have 18 or 20 or 22 songs. So this is fewer. They're very well-placed, and they all carry a lot of weight. And the songs remain strong and very well-delivered. With most of the big numbers in Act Two, now, notably, there's a young soldier's unexpected lament. He's been a courier. He shows up, never says a word. He brings letters from General George Washington, of course, who's trying to lead the ragged army of the Continental Congress against the British in the battlefield. And this young soldier brings dispatches from George Washington. And then in the second act, he sings this song, a lament about battlefield death, and it's a powerful number, and it's powerfully sung in this production by Brooke Simpson. And it's followed by another song, which is really uh, the crucial song of 1776, Molasses to Rum, which is a brutal and cynical indictment of Northern complicity in the slave trade, which, of course, was part of the American economy at that time. And it's sung by the delegate from South Carolina, Edward Rutledge, who was both elegantly performed in the dialogue scenes and also in this number elegantly sung by Cassandra Haddock. Now, the real Continental Congress of 1776 didn't wrestle with the issue of slavery at all. They swept it under the carpet. And the musical makes the point that the Declaration of Independence wouldn't have been approved if they hadn't swept it under the carpet, quite knowingly, leaving it for future Americans to contend with. And that's some of the, the politics of the show and also the strength of these songs that still work. But I have to say that what struck me, given the political climate today in the United States, what struck me as the most pointed song, uh, also in Act Two, is called Cool, Cool, Considerate Men, which is a defense of right-leaning politics. The Continental Congress was divided between, you know, those who were to the right and those who were to the left, trying to find mutual agreement in territory. Now, in 1776, being on the right meant wealthy property owners, not today's uh, bigots and ultra-nationalists and constitution trashers who seem to be taking over the right wing in the United States. And all of them today would appall even the conservative founding fathers. At least that's how I see it. So what we have here, Gary, we have a show that is certainly familiar to uh, a lot of listeners, 1776. It still has messages for us. It still is conveying the history of the United States, though it's not 100% accurate, but they've taken some liberties, but not too many liberties. So the show still has messages for us, even if it's delivered with a gimmick, a well-presented gimmick, but a gimmick nonetheless. Right. That's actually something I wanted to, to get into, is how maybe certain historical elements or politics hit today compared to when this musical first opened in 1969. Uh, are there certain things depicted in the play that come through differently 50-some years later? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I don't think in 1969 the, the critics back then or the audiences probably just ignored, as they say, the obvious sexism, the situation, you know, the idea that we do talk about our founding fathers and not our founding mothers. Women could not vote until the early 20th century in this country, as we know. The casting gimmick, you know, makes an attempt 
to address that just in the physical way of the, the you know the physical aspect of the types of people women non-binary trans actors who are performing the founding fathers but they you know they put on the long 18th century coats and they take off their modern shoes and they slip into shoes with buckles on them um, that's the opening moment of the show and you're often running they do not attempt to exaggerate or change or emphasize in any way, let's call it feminine qualities of the characters. They play it, uh, let's say, they play it straight in that sense. And you just know, you are aware, or sometimes you even lose sight of the fact that these are not men playing the men's roles. So I suppose that's a statement in itself, but it doesn't change the fundamental material. Earlier you referenced Hamilton and you mentioning how it likely influenced the approach uh, this production of 1776 has taken. And I think I read something that, that Hamilton uh, was not directly, but took some inspiration from that original production of 1776. Are there any parallels here with a musical take on American history? Well, I, I don't think there's any, any uh, um, musical influence between 1776 and 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 Hamilton, you know, Hamilton was largely based on on uh, a published biography, a definitive biography of Alexander Hamilton's life by Ron Chernow. But I suspect that uh, Lin Manuel Miranda, who is indeed a very astute uh, uh, student of the history of musical theater in the United States, he knows. He knows his stuff when it comes to musical theater. I think he must have said when he was working on Hamilton, you know, are there different approaches? Is there a way to freshen this material? Some of the characters are the same in both both musicals, but very, very few. You know, uh, Tom Jefferson is there in both of them, but uh, Ben Franklin is not, and uh, George Washington does not appear in 1776. Uh, letters from him are read, but he's not a character. The men who put together the Declaration of Independence uh, largely were not the men who put together what became the government of the United States in its final form. A few, you know, John Adams, who was important in 1776, became our second president, but he's not a character in, in Hamilton either. So there's some overlap, but it's, it's fairly minimal. And... I think that Lin-Manuel Miranda was probably inspired more by trying to freshen how the characters are presented rather than influenced by anything directly in the nature of the writing or the ideas of, of the show. And, and, of course, he brought, as I said, a, a completely new 20th century uh, musical and uh, and. Uh, vocabulary to it and, and a way of handling the lyrics, the, the rap and hip-hop lyrics that were was quite, quite fresh and was a, a complete reimagining. Uh, you know, Hamilton is one of the best musicals I've seen in many, many... It was one of the best musicals I've seen in my life because it is so innovative and so fresh. Um, 1776 was not innovative in the sense of its music or lyrics, even when it was new. It right. was extremely well written, but it was a mainstream musical for all that. How many productions of 1776 do you think you've seen? 
I've only seen, let's see, this one. I haven't seen it for about 30 years before oh, wow. seeing this one. It was done a few decades back at the Marriott Theater in Lincolnshire. That was the last production I saw. And um, I must have seen it once before that when it was a, a newer show. I don't remember specifically. I'd have to go through my big trunk that holds all my theater programs. It's a very large, very heavy <laughs> joke, as you can imagine, Terry. I can. Your final verdict, then? Are you recommending this? My final verdict is, yeah, I recommend it. It's a good production, as long as you don't go with you know the wrong expectations that this is going to be another Hamilton. It really isn't, but it's you know, an extremely talented group of people. Uh, the CIBC, CIBC Theater is the smallest of Chicago's large theaters and a beautiful house. And it's a lovely place, a lovely environment in which to see a show. Uh, any show that reminds us of what some of the root ideas of America were, or the root ideas are, I think is important in this day and age, probably every day. The touring production of 1776 continues at the CIBC Theater through March 12th. Jonathan, thanks so much. You're most welcome, Gary. You're tuned into the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. The world lost a true jazz legend this past week. Pioneering saxophonist Wayne Shorter passed away on Thursday, March 2nd at the age of 89. Born and raised in Newark, New Jersey, Shorter is among the most revered saxophonists and composers of the past century. He rose to prominence in the 1960s working with Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers and the Miles Davis Quintet. Shorter's working relationship with Davis continued into the late 60s, culminating with the release of 1970's Bitches Brew. A year later, Shorter formed the trailblazing fusion band Weather Report. Never content to stay in the confines of any one single genre, Shorter worked with non-jazz artists like Joni Mitchell, Steely Dan, and Carlos Santana. Later in his career, the renowned saxophonist formed the Wayne Shorter Quartet, continuing his musical exploration. Over the course of his 60-plus year career, Shorter won 12 Grammys, was named an NEA Jazz Master, became a Guggenheim Fellow, and was awarded the Polar Music Prize, an international honor recognizing excellence in music making. I had the privilege of interviewing Mr. Shorter in the summer of 2016 ahead of a concert at Symphony Center in Chicago. His skills as a jazz improviser carried over to his conversations. At times it felt like he was five steps ahead of the questions being asked. An obituary in The Guardian quoted a friend of Shorter's who said, quote, If you ask Wayne the time, he'll start talking about the cosmos and how time is relative. Over the course of our conversation, Shorter referenced Bella Lugosi, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, 12-year-old piano prodigy Joey Alexander, and did a spot-on imitation of Miles Davis. Within his sometimes cryptic and philosophical answers are some fascinating nuggets on jazz history and ideas about the role artists play in the universe. In light of Shorter's passing, I wanted to pay tribute to the musician and composer's incredible legacy. This morning, we'll revisit that 2016 interview. I started our conversation by congratulating Shorter on a recent recognition. 
So first off, congratulations on being inducted into the Jazz at Lincoln Center Hall of Fame along with Ben Webster and J.J. Johnson. I know you you played a little with J.J. Did you ever spend any time with Ben Webster? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually, just talking with Ben in the club. You know, at Birdland, we talked quite a bit. Just talking a little bit, you know, between shows. Uh, somebody else was there, and we were like, we part of the audience. And we just talk about things like saxophone mechanics, uh, instrumental mechanics. Who are the best ones? And um, the mouthpiece makers. Uh, Sonny Rollers and I talked about Auto Link. You know, Autolink made nine mouthpieces for me back in the 60s. So mostly conversation, Eddie Lockjaw Davis, Harry Sweets Edison, we, we we talked, you know. When I was with Art Blakey's messengers, met Louis Armstrong, and we talked with, uh, at length with uh, Woody Herman. In fact, I was with him before he passed at the club in uh, Philadelphia. He had about two weeks ago, and we had the bar, stand guests, Myself and him, Woody Herman, but th- these conversations come when when you kind of extend yourself beyond just talking about music and playing the instrument and all that. They were kind of getting into, I think, even Lama Hampton talked talk with him too. I I was actually getting into what is it all for. Then further than that, what is anything for? Any profession and what is life? What is you know what I mean? Sure. Knowing that. Eddie Locke had two weeks to live. Eddie Locke, George Davis, came to with a nurse to the club in Chicago. And he said, I just want to see you guys one more time. And all I did was just look at his face. first came here, I bought Humphrey Bogart's first house in California, and there was time to close the bar. It was last lost call, and the bartender didn't know it was Woody Herman, and so I think it was Stan Getz said, hey man, leave the bar open. That's Woody. And, and he's sick. And you're holding holding Louis Armstrong's hand. It's, How do you do? How you doing? And, and Lionel Hampton, and Illinois Jacket was with us. We crossed paths a lot, and he would say things like, when you're playing, sometimes you got to back up as if you're backing up. And behind you, there's a cliff, and you got to see how far you can go without falling off. And you're playing some stuff, and you back up and back up, and then you say, whoa. <laughs> so they were acting out. They had all kinds of ways of doing something new, breaking through something. They, they were talking about like breaking through what you do in conjunction with breaking through things in your own character and life. You just mentioned some great names. You've played with some of the most celebrated musicians ever recorded, crossed paths with other greats. In your opinion, whose views on music and art most closely match your thoughts and ideas? Well, actually, Miles, Miles Davis was the, the actual person. Miles and Art Blakey, and, and Monk, too. Dizzy Gillespie, like when Bebop came along, I, I didn't even know these guys, but I heard them on the radio. But now I realize, they said, why is everything fast? Why is everybody playing fast? They said, because society was slow. And they were saying, hurry up, come on, we got we to gotta move. You know, it's a social movement here. 
And there was an attempt to put a halt to that. They're not going to play this stuff on the radio. It's not musical. It sounds like chicken scratching. And, you know, that's both. We knew it then. We know it now. have a mission. There's a mission that we have. This band that I'm in now, not my band, it's the D band. And the mission that Charlie Parker, in his 10 years, even though he doesn't matter what he did to himself, the, the message from Charlie Parker, even when he was throwing stuff at Igor Stravinsky's La Sacre du Printemps, the right of spring, denying certain Russian soldiers to, you know, to play this and that during World War II and beyond. And some of them, Dmitry Shostakovich, coming walking down the street here in Hollywood looking for a job. Nobody knew who the hell he was. America. They knew who Bela Lugosi, you know, horror movies and stuff. But, if, you know, I'm, I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about doing new stuff. The new kids, the new generation, they're into so much stuff. The audiences that we have, that we've been having, we just came back from Turkey, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Switzerland, but before, with all this this time, and it's 15 years that's, or 12 years that this group's been together, the audience have been like 15 years old, 16, 17, and then people in their mid-20s, some in their 40s, but a lot of kids, South Korea, Japan, you don't hear this on the radio, they don't, okay, the streaming and the, and the internet stuff, you're getting a kind of a look at what's going on here. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. We're revisiting an interview I did with jazz legend Wayne Shorter from the summer of 2016. Shorter died this past week at the age of 89. I know you're a big movie fan, and you mentioned Miles Davis. I recently saw Miles Ahead, the new Miles Davis film with Don Cheadle, and you're in it as well at the very end. What did you think of the, the finished film? No, I haven't seen it, but we, we were on the end of it. Right. We were playing you know, some kind of concert and everything like that. I think Don Cheadle should, you know, whatever he had at his disposal and whatever he allowed himself to investigate he he came up with what, what he came up with and um, if you want to put it next to something he said, well you can be left with wanting this wanting that i want you you want to, to show the the unusual this and that genius or the, of, a, of a person and not go into his dark places and the downtrodden stuff and uh like in bird <laughs> or other things and round midnight the usual, then there's the Glenn Miller story, and there's the Benny Goodman story, and there's the da da da, -da story. This young man with a horn, Kirk Douglas, sure. which his son, Michael Douglas, at the United Nations, when they, you know about Jazz Day, right? Right, International yeah. Jazz First Day. First one was at the UN. Michael Douglas spoke to the United Nations. He, Morgan Freeman, and Robert De Niro, 
and Madeleine Albright, they were all there. And he said, I learned a lot about, about this whole thing from my father when he did Young Men with a Horn. And I learned a lot about jazz. We had the last jazz day at uh, the White House recently. Right, I saw some pictures you were there with. The little boy. Yeah, the young Joey Alexander. Yeah, the thing was, the thing about that was, leave him alone. If you're expecting me to sit there with the little boy and me to go all over the place, that's not that's not what that's about. Just leave him alone. Let's see what he's going to do. And it's only about three and a half minutes of that. But gotta trust the space. That's not used because the space is rhythm, and we need more space rhythm for young people to express express not even themselves yet, but express how they're looking at us and the last generation and they're looking out past us to the future. Encouraging, leaving people alone so they can garner something called fearlessness, but not to be confused with arrogance. You have a lot of arrogance in uh, well-paid, well-heard, well-marketed camps from all over the world. This kind of resistance from you know record companies and corporate this and corporate that. This kind of resistance to uh, things. We, we don't know how to market. We, where's the hook? Where, we need a hook. We need to focus. It's, it's all over the place. We instead of blaming industries for not making a culture for more poetry, art, painting, and uh, inventions and all that stuff, you can't use, use blame. What you have to do is use the resistance. See what resistance means. Because... An airplane can't take off without resistance. So the artist has to see what the art is in everything that's presented to them. Like a wall. What are you going to do with that wall? Not do what uh, Al-Qaeda or ISIS would do. Blow it up and go through it. We go through it with your imagination. The place where the universe doesn't end. And finding out there's no such thing as a beginning or an ending. Now we're getting deep, Mr. Shorter. Let's take it a step further. What forms of art and culture excite you today? Art and culture? Right. All of it. It's a... It's, uh, the investigative attitude that we've been invited by the Stanford scientists, astrophysicists, when we played in San Francisco. And the whole band, Herbie's band too, our wives. And when we got there, they were talking about the Collider in CERN, Switzerland. So-called, they don't call it the Big Bang uh, Project. They call it, right now, they say it's called Unfolding. 
the unfolding. They basically said, we, we, we want to talk to you about improvisation. And they had all these mathematical formulas o- over the blackboards. And they said, don't pay attention to these numbers, this math. They said, these are jokes. What they're finding out about that collider, have you seen um, particle fever? I have. Yeah. So all, all this stuff, we were surprised when they said, we don't talk about We want to talk about improvisation. And they said, basically said, we want to throw something out there. Because we know from here to there, mathematically, it's not enough. We, we measure this from here to there, and looking for predictions, getting a prediction. But this thing about multiverse, where these laws, quantum physics laws, do not fit. I have tapes of Stephen Hawking talking about, are there boundaries in, in space? Are there boundaries? And he says, there is no such thing as nothing. The universe created itself at voice. So I just slammed the book shut and I started to just look look straight ahead and didn't see anything. I don't want to see the things that we look at all the time as proof of existence, as, as proof of a beginning and an end. away something that hasn't done the function that it's supposed to do. It's put away and forgotten, but it's there waiting for its actual function to further something else. So I guess you use the word transform, transformative and all that. And when we get into improvisation, trying to get into the moment, that challenge, forgetting everything you sort of learn, the pedagogy of music and the da 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 and Miles talks about trying to get, that doesn't sound like music. Or forget how you learn how to play. Play like you don't know. Don't make believe, but play, you don't know how to play. Or when we were little kids playing in a vacant lot, we play all day, a bunch of kids in the neighborhood playing all damn day. <laughs> and then the parents would come home, parents would come home, home and ask us, after five hours of, of four, three hours of playing, what have you kids been doing? And you say, nothing. I want to find out what that nothing is. That's how I think about music, life, and culture, and art, and all that, and science, and us, existence. So it's those examples of creativity that occur in the moment that are improvised. Those are what, those are what interests you. But I think this, this, as a whole nation, we're faced with that. We're faced with, we're faced with negotiating the unexpected for the first time, and maybe improvisation, learning what improvisation is, where you can't lie, you can't prepare a script, and you can't go on old strategies, formula that used to work to get your inventory, you know, the inventory that you want beyond power, money, fame, and the entertainment factor. What is it? I think it's trying to do things that talk about becoming more human because we're arrogant enough to think that we're human when we're born. But I think it's the eternal adventure of humanity, of becoming more human, is the ultimate adventure of life. And Miles will say, play that. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you play that? 
talked like that, you know, before Miles passed. Why don't we get together and play some more? That's the last thing he was saying to me. Let's get together and play some more. And he passed away. He talked to Herbie and myself and, and uh, Tony Williams and Ron. He wanted to get the quintet back together? Yeah, get something together where you, you bring in, like Herbie did the headhunters and all that, and the weather report years and all that. He wanted he, he wanted to see, not have a Miles Davis band, but a, a congregation of something. He knew how, how sick he was. So I think he was willing the, his, the life that he had known to a, a denominator, which meant more than making money and being who he was, uh, the name, you know. He was looking into outside of himself. He said, I had a band. He said, why don't your band and my band go on the road together? That was jazz legend Wayne Shorter from an interview I conducted in the summer of 2016. Kind of ended abruptly there. It's because we ran out of time. One of his handlers came in to, to end the interview. But obviously I could have talked to him for several hours. Wayne Shorter passed away this past week at the age of 89. He'll be missed. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Remember, we're in the midst of our spring pledge drive. Please give us a call or go online to make a donation. We appreciate it. Have a great week. Thanks for listening.